What does abolition sound like to you as someone who creates sound? To have a context in which we can live within, with inside of uh, vulnerability, inside of duration and time, and inside of complexity and allowing things to play out, essentially inside a process. That is something that to me represents a process that would approximate or approach the process of abolition. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. By joining the book club, you get all new Haymarket titles delivered to your door and a 50% discount on the entire Haymarket website, all for one low price. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening on. I was already acquainted with Samora's music through the Transformation Suite. So of course, it was like a celebrity in my office. You know, I get all kinds of celebrities, but not at that level, you know. Uh, but I knew Transformation Suite, which he had released in 2016, uh, which is a very powerful multidisciplinary work of art, uh, thoroughly dedicated to calling out and abolishing all forms of oppression, from racial capitalism to colonialism, from the prison house agenda to the physical prison house itself and all of its manifestations. Uh, and, and, you know, as I mentioned to Samora that day, you know, Transformation Suite became part of my course, Jazz and the Political Imagination, became required listening. So by the time we met, uh, he was about to release his EP, Black Spring, which consisted of, you know, four very powerful musical statements that spoke to Black life and multiplicity. Uh, songs like Hold That Weight, uh, Kill War, Blood, and For Those Lost, For Those Taken. Uh, he was also finishing, you know, working on and finishing what became uh, the extraordinary record we're going to talk about today, Grief. And I should say, I'm not going to say much more about it because we're going to discuss it, but I have to say, you know, I kind of fell in love with Samora's music. I mean, going back to Transformation Suites, but it just got, you know, deeper and deeper for me. And I remember um, plotting with my friend and uh, the playwright Naomi Wallace, uh, who's a dear friend for many, many years. We we're talking about a musical, maybe a musical about John Brown. And I was like, Samora has to do the music, you know? <laughs> so if that ever happens, um, you have a job whether you like it or not. Uh, so we, we began uh, a series of deep conversations uh, about the responsibility of the artists to movements. And this is just like personal conversations over the phone, in person. Um, and you know, really the question was, what does it mean to create an abolitionist art when art itself circulates in commodified form? How can you be ethical? Now, how do we love in this world designed to crush uh, the impulse or sell it back to you? Um, now, what's amazing about Samora is that he had already established himself as a major artist. I mean, he can make 
living, performing, recording, scoring films and the like. But he's on a different kind of journey. And he's at Harvard now, uh, working with Vijay Iyer, uh, you know, advancing his own abolitionist vision, which really began in 2014 when he conceived of the Healing Project, which we'll talk about. Now, just a warning, our, our conversation is completely unscripted. You know, we, we've not even talked about what we're going to talk about. <laughs> um, and so think of this as a jam session, right? Thoroughly improvised, but playing off the changes of freedom dreams. So with all that, Samora, welcome uh, to the space. It's an honor to have you. Um, and thank you for taking the time to do this. Thank you so much for having me. Um, absolutely honored. As you know, you've been like a guiding light in my life and um, somebody that whenever I need uh, need wisdom or just counsel or support of any kind, you've always been there. When I think so much about um, the first, the, the very first and most important, you know, uh, principles that I'd like to carry forth in life, it is community and like really, truly learning be there for each other. You've always been there for me. So, I well, I I so appreciate that. I'm so uh, shocked. And and just for people, no, I I didn't Venmo you anything. That was, <laughs> it just came out of nowhere. <laughs> no. And but seriously, um, you know, I want to. Uh, I I know that our job technically is kind of you know think about the 20th anniversary of this book and its implications. But you know, you your work, and I mentioned this in the new introduction. You represent. Um, a wave of artists who, as I say, you know, turn freedom dreams um, from noun to verb. Mm. And one of the things, you know, um, about that book is that, you know, people have said, you know, wow, how come you didn't write more about artists, about art, rather? And of course, I write about art in Freedom Dreams, but like, why didn't you have a chapter on music or a chapter on jazz or whatever? I'm like, so much of the book is about the commitment of artists to movement and what is that relationship, you know? So in many ways, you know, you really embody that, making a choice to create art that isn't simply um, making a statement. It's not protest art, but it's one where you engage people where they are and struggle to try to figure out together in, as, as you call it, a chorus, you know, which I love that concept of the chorus, um, to find a way forward to transform the world that we're in. So I have to ask you, you know, um, uh, some of the stuff I kind of know, but some of this I don't actually know uh, in terms of your journey, like how you got to this place. I mean, you have this extraordinary family, um, your mother, professor of urban planning, San Francisco State, you know, Rekha Rivera Pinder Hughes, who, uh, brilliant, your father, you know, He's head of social and behavioral sciences at uh, uh, UCSF School of Nursing. He's the author of, and we never talked about this, of Race in the Hood, which I read back when it came out in 1997, uh, which is really, you know, one of the important texts that looks at the source of urban youth violence and ways to interrupt it. So all this stuff about violence interruption that we talk about among abolitionists, he was thinking about that back then. And of course, you have your immensely talented sister and collaborator, flutist and singer Elena Pinterhughes, um, and you grew up in Berkeley. So now, someone could take all the information and say, well, of course, 
some more is going to come out radical. But there's no guarantee. You know, those, those elements alone are not enough. So what is your path? How did you get to this point of dedicating yourself to abolition, to, to an ethical artistic practice and this constant questioning, you know, in, in, you know, besides just being a brilliant pianist, singer and everything else? Well, thank you. Um, first and foremost, just very honored to be with you. Um, very deeply grateful to um, Haymarket for having me as well. Um, and I have to say that, you know, um, as an artist, um, Haymarket has also been a very, very deeply important uh, part of my life um, from not just the, the books that they've published, but also the way in which they have formed and continued to, to build their institution and practice and the way that they have invited people into that practice, it's very difficult to continuously be able to survive in this society as um, you know, a, an institution of any kind that has the principles that Haymarket does. And right. it's a beacon for all of us. Um, That's right. And I know that you're gonna write a book for, for Haymarket at some point. Oh, well, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't agreed to that yet. I do hope so. I mean, they're, they're my heroes over there. So I'm grateful to be part of this and also, um, you know, watched pretty much every single Haymarket YouTube conversation during the pandemic, including one with you and, and my friend Zoe and many others, Badur, you know, uh, Alagra, who's just incredible, just changed my life. So um, also just want to say if there's any like type of random looking things behind me, I'm inside the middle of, of this exhibition that's connected to the album that we're doing in New York at the kitchen. So apologies for any random lights. But um, yes, to return to um, your question, well, definitely, you know, I was definitely very fortunate to, as you, as you said, be a part of a, a family and community that um, not only was very radical in its principles, but also that always fused that with creativity. You know, I grew up with um, my parents telling me, you know, okay, if you're going to be a musician, this is the type of things that you need to listen to. And it was, you know, Harry Belafonte, it was Miriam Makiva, you know, it was um, obviously Nina Simone. Um, and it was also um, a lot of things that, you know, don't necessarily have a, a one person's name attached to them. Like it was the, you know, old, old songs, ring shouts, you know, field hollers. It was um, the material from the folks that, you know, were incarcerated at um, Angola and things like that which have been very important in my practice too, because, you know, uh, it's, it's always, music is always a communal practice to me. So that's going back to what you were talking about. Oftentimes we can see the artist's name or this person's creation, but to me, you know, art in the same way as organizing is always a community practice. Um, it's always formed in community. Um, and so I think for me, you know, it, it was very fortunate for me to grow up in that way. And um, then as far as how, how that formed in my life moving forward, um, it really just was about uh, two, I guess I would say two things. One is um, continuing to be able to be in a situation where I'm coming into contact, being inspired by, um, you know, people that continue to ask the questions that I wanted to ask and even try to formulate some answers. You're definitely one of them. Uh, Miriam Kaba has been one of them. You know, uh, Ruth Wilson Gilmore has been one of them. You know, so many people um, that, you know, 
that's that's kind of been always the grounding in my life like has been those people whether i know them or not so many of them i've never met um and i think that's probably similar for many of us um and the other part has been spirit and that's a very interesting thing that i do like to talk about in these contexts because i think a lot of times in the in the organizing context maybe we don't talk about spirit so much um and and i think at least for me as an artist, there's so many parts of my path that I don't, I never could explain to you. Like, I don't know where some of the songs come from. And I talk to people that are no longer here, you know? And that exchange is a very difficult thing to explain, but I do know that it is part of that lineage. Oh yeah, I, I know I know exactly what you're talking about. People don't believe that um, I couldn't have written Thelonious Monk without getting his permission first. It's a long story. I actually wrote about it, but it was literally getting his permission and his daughter's permission who had passed away very, very young. Uh, and, you know, our ancestors are with us, yeah. you know, which, which, you know, I, which reminds me, you know, that before we get into um, uh, the more recent work, I just have to say, you know, about Transformation Suite, everything you said just now is embodied there. You know, I think about the fact that this is a piece that in my, to my ears, draws on two centuries of Black music history and a kind of bottomless and borderless imagination, you know, uh, and you create this suite, and it really is a suite in which, you know, each composition moves dialectically through the phases of transformation, history, cycles, momentum, and ascension. Um, and it is, you know, dedicated to the victims of state-sanctioned racial violence the title is really key. The title is is the key word for all of our movements. Transformation, you know, it's it's, it's um, challenging us to be the antithesis to create this new synthesis, ascension, you know, uh, and 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 you know, we it's it's so important to think about that. And this is why I, I think about all your work paralleling the project of Freedom Dreams, which is to you know, recognize that yes, we're always trying to defend ourselves, always trying to beat back catastrophe. But then, what does it mean to uh, to push for transformation in ourselves and in others, and in the society as a whole? And that's your music is all about that. You know, and of course, you can't do that without spirit. You can't do that through, you know, um, uh, enlightenment rationality. It's just not going to work. So that brings me to a, a before we get into specifics, just a general question I had for you, and it's not a trick question, but it's it's open ended. And feel free, by the way, to move your phone around to show us some of the things behind you. Um, but you know, last year I gave a, a joint talk with um, composer, musician, artist Paul Rucker, where we were asked to respond to the question, "What does abolition sound like?" And of course, I thought about you. The whole time I'm speaking, I thought about you and your work. And I'm just curious if someone were to pose that question to you, what does abolition sound like to you as someone who creates, you know, sound? Well, yeah, um, I'm definitely, I mean, I'm really trying to work out that question right now because that's actually the, uh, that's actually what my dissertation is about, as you know. Uh, <laughs> So I'm really asking this question right now. 
Um, and uh, apologies for the, the noise in the background. But um, I think the place where I like to start with that is um, at the meeting point of um, language, um, sonics, visuality, and place. And I want to break down the way mm -hmm. I see each of those playing a part. Um, so to, to start with language, obviously, I mean, the first issue we have, as we know, is that we are speaking in the language that the colonizer has forced us to speak in. So we're already working from a deficit. That being said, I do still believe that as we as we have shown throughout history, we we flip that and we use it to our own ends. And then the question becomes, what is the sound or the language or the language sound of um, our authentic voice? And one place that I have started to try to look at that question has been through the, the influence of one of my mentors, Anna Devere Smith, who has talks talks all the time about the fact that 95% of what a person says is regurgitated, but if they are if they are um, charged in a certain way by a question or or a vulnerability of some sorts, then they actually bring forth language that is truly coming from their heart. Now that's obviously a paraphrase of of how she would say it, but I have definitely seen that in my process, particularly with the healing project, talking to people around the country about their experiences with both structural violence and their own healing practices, because the times in which uh, I will ask them a certain thing or we'll talk about a certain particular experience, you hear the register of their voice change and they say something different. And in that space is where I hear the sound of abolition in that, in that practice, particularly because oftentimes it's happening when we're talking about things we don't have a chance to talk about in our everyday conversations in this, um, in this country. And that can be external, that can be structural, and also that could be internal. It could be about vulnerability, it could be about loss, it could be about many different things. Um, then the sound part, and that's attached to visuality, I think a lot about duration. Um, this is something I'm very interested in right now because I think that in our world right now, um, our whole society is built around spectacle, which of course is Badur Alag's, I learned so much from her work on that, and also around violence. And so um, to have a context in which we can live within, with inside of uh, vulnerability, inside of duration and time, and inside of um, complexity and allowing things to play out, um, that is essentially inside a process. That is something that to me represents a process that would approximate or approach the process of abolition. Um, because it's also to me the process of um, what abolition would require, which is um, complexity, understanding, forgiveness, to, to envision and actually try to practice a world in which we do not, um, you know, put people in jail, in which we have no uh, forms of, you know, uh, the court-like structures that we have now, those type of performative structures to decide who is guilty and who is not. That wouldn't have to mean that we would have to have another world in which we think about a different type of accountability that would involve duration people changing over time, allowing people to change over time. Um, and then the last part involving place, and that's very specific to how I think about it with art, but could be extended to other contexts, is that the places themselves in which we do all of these things have to change. 
And there's been so many times in which I encounter trying to make a piece about abolition or trying to play a song in an in an institution, and that institution employs the employs the police, or a museum has security, or a you know uh, any of these versions of things. You know, they have they the the show is at a price point where many people cannot attend the show. That cannot be an abolitionist show, even if we're playing music that is about that, because it's already reproducing carceral logic. So those are the things I think about when you ask that question. Okay, so so freedom is a place. Freedom is time. Freedom, you know, is a sound. Freedom is is liberation from language and the transformation of that language, you know, which Amy says there basically, you know, talks about his poetry. Um, you know, duration, duration is so interesting. You know, I thought about what you're saying in terms of the the double-edged sword of time and how on one hand we are struggling so hard to not just in the long run eliminate cages for everybody but just in the short run to eliminate life sentence which is a death sentence that to basically freeze people in a cage for the rest of their lives is the same as death and i I mean literal death you know, not metaphoric death. Um, and at the same time, and I'm wondering your thoughts about this, we're living in a society where, uh, which is the nature of capitalism, everything is sped up. The idea of having time to do anything, because, you know, the development of industrial society is the creation of the clock. It's not that we haven't had cycles of time and duration, and that's already existed, but the, the collapse of time and space, the time becomes, shrinks, shrinks. We have to produce more within a small amount of time uh, and and come up with solutions within a small time and fix things in a small amount of time. So there's no sense of, of patience of the long run, you know, which is the, the flip side, like the other side of duration that we, you know, we struggle and we struggle not just for tomorrow, I mean, like 24 hours, but for the tomorrows of the generations to come, you know. Um, and I'm wondering your thoughts about this, given, you know, you're a young person who grew up in this society uh, where everything's fast, everything's quick. Um, I mean, even, even funders, and I talk about this in the book, uh, expect um, some outcome. You know, and if you don't produce that outcome, they will pull back the money because the long work of building a culture where we can actually transform ourselves is not the thing that's supported because it takes too long. You know, um, what are your thoughts about, you know, as, a, as someone of a, of a generation that grew up in that, surrounded by that, you know? Yeah, I mean, there's so so many elements around time uh, that, you know, I think I, I always love to talk about and also, you know, would love to continue to hear your thoughts on it. I mean, obviously, you know, um, I, I 100% agree with everything you're saying. And in addition, it's such a strange dichotomy to think about um, the, the ways in which our society is built around the clock and built mm-hmm. around, speeds everything up. 
requires us to produce so much um, and then also to prove that production in a certain way, which is also interesting because there's also the public-private dichotomy that we don't talk about, which I always learned so much from Baldwin on that point when he talks about the importance of privacy. Um, you know, and that's a whole nother conversation. Um, but I think, you know, comparing that with the conception and realities of time within the carceral state and within people who are incarcerated or inside of detention, um, or certainly inside of solitary confinement, um, or the experience of someone like my friend Keith Lamar, who is currently on death row, um, you know, that is, it's kind of like something I can't even describe or explain in in words to make sense of, you know. Um, but what I will say is that I think that um, there is there's a lesson to be learned, I think, in that respect from the creativity um, of both artistic process, artistic practice, and also the every the everyday in in ways that are practiced maybe even in places like I don't know the kitchen or like the um, the kitchen here, but also everybody's kitchen to be clear, um, or um, you know uh, the di dining room table or something. And and what I mean by that is that um, those moments in which time is forgotten in that linear sense. Um, or time is frozen or, you know, uh, moved in, in different ways. Those are, that's like a powerful force, you know? Um, and I think also in a, in a strange way, and this is something I don't necessarily know how to talk about well, but um, I find that like the, the lessons for, the world that we might want to build and how we want to operate within it are created inside the worst versions of the very conditions that make us operate the exact opposite way, right? And so then there's this very strange question I always have, which is how do we maintain and practice and share those ways of being without reproducing the rest of it and or allowing people to say that those conditions also are the reason why those things are happening, you know, and I'll give an example for that just not to be too too long winded, but speaking to, you know, conditions inside the prison is that oftentimes I think that people find who are incarcerated, you know, a lot of folks that I know who are incarcerated, they find and create and do all these amazing things despite the prison condi conditions, but also at the same time um, they are operating inside of a different paradigm of time, you know? But then as a result, that gets turned around and the prison takes credit for, oh, see, look, they're doing real good stuff, you know what I mean? Da, 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 da. And it's like, no, that's, no, that's not, you know, that's not correct. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know. That's a little bit of a roundabout, but that's what I think about. So I, I wonder if you have any. Yeah, it's not a roundabout at all. It actually gets us straight to the to the point, which is um, if you could talk about um, the grief project and the, the healing project. Um, I know they're connected. Uh, and, you know, I just, I have a lot to say about it, you know, um, myself. And I'll, I'll save that. But I just have to say that if anyone of you got a chance to see the exhibition um 
in San Francisco, it's it's mind-boggling. It's it's transformative, uh, and you did a lot of work in terms of interviewing uh, people who are incarcerated, you know, transforming those stories, those narratives, uh, into you know really truly transformative work of art that challenges all of us. And then just like you're saying, like it's in depth of the oppressive conditions in which we live that, you know, if I, dare I say, freedom dreams are born, you know? And that's what I heard and saw in your show. Could you talk about those those projects, how you got to them, what, what, what you're doing and who you're working with? Sure, for sure. I was trying to show behind me because I have Brother Gil Scott is behind me right now, but I don't know if it, the, the angle didn't really let me do that. But um, there's a, the piece that's on behind right now is one of the pieces from the Healing Project. It's called Same Gang, which I created with my brother Josh Bagley, and also great, great, incredible um, artist uh, Saudaji Tashosi. Um, which to me, that that piece is about um, basically taking all the all the ways in which uh, you know. Black, Latino, people of color, our indigenous people are criminalized and stereotyped as, okay, these are the ways that this behavior shows up. And to basically flip that and show how all those things are actually really the province of white supremacy. And so we take these ideas like no snitching and we show, you know, the the, the first amendment, you know, people in Congress and we take conce- obviously conception around violence, around capitalism. Um, you know, we, we have a great section um, making fun of Jeff Bezos, which I really love a lot. Uh, you know, and so we get to go in on that. Um, but I think, you know, for me, the, the purpose of, um, of that work uh, is to do hopefully two things in tandem. One is to provide us, you know, some type of challenge to stay violence to show the ways in which it's showing up and also the narrative uh, elements that underpin and kind of sustain it um, in very insidious ways. And I think that's very important for me right now. I mean, you know, right now I'm living in New York where, you know, we have a mayor who is trying to literally put in place policies that will, um, you know, uh, involuntarily commit people with mental illness on the subways to the hospital. And the police are supposed to do that. So this is incredibly dangerous, and it's obviously undergirded by the fact that, you know, we have all these media sources that are playing the fear game around bail reform and around, you know, violence and crime and all this stuff. So uh, those two things are clearly, to me, so interconnected. And so to me, the job of um, the artists or really anyone working around, you know, narrative material, storytelling, et cetera, is you have to counter... Uh, the pervasiveness of those fear-mongering tactics um, that have not only existed for so long, but are still continuing at this very moment. Um, so the, the project is hopefully trying to do that and to talk about the real conditions of, of that are created by the state, but it's also trying to show the healing practices that people are moving through on a day-to-day basis, and also to show them not in the the easy way, I think a lot of people, have, I remember a lot of people came in, into the space and said, oh, I thought this would be like a lot more positive than, than it is. 
And I was like, I don't know, man. Like, it is positive to me, but it's it's also very complicated. It's very complex because it's showing that a lot of people are not on the other side of a thing. You know, it's a lot of folks talking about the stuff that they're dealing with, and they might be dealing with it forever. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they're staying in the same place. And that doesn't necessarily mean that it, the, it's not being moved around and then not using using tactics to to try to you know, build healing strategies for themselves and their communities. And often, so so many times, the things that people were saying helped them the most are things that I, I've never seen supported. I've never seen them funded. I've never seen them, um, you know, presented in a way where outside of the community, like, this is the way that we should build build something with it in terms of infrastructure. Um, and so the purpose of the, of the project was literally just to try to have a lot of folks sharing that information with each other. And for me to maybe just be like a small part of that. Um, and, um, it's an ongoing project. Hopefully it will last for as long as I can sustain it and expand. Um, right now we have, you know, we've done exhibition and, um, and a digital archive, which is free and open source, where all the interviews are that people can visit. And then hopefully the next thing we will do is a book, because the one thing we haven't been able to do is get the work in the prisons. Um, but um, yeah, that that's that's essentially the the work that we're trying to do. And there's so many there's so many people and things that I would want to talk about. I, just to use one example, I think um, you know. Uh, this woman who, who I always love to to pay tribute to because unfortunately she had she has since passed since I interviewed her for the project. But Sharon Hewitt, she's a from San Francisco. She's like the mother of San Francisco. She's the person that she created a space where all the mothers who had lost children to violence they could gather and be supported um, through the space that she made. And she tells a story in the in the project of meeting a mother who had lost somebody very recently, who had lost her son very recently, um, and, you know, not knowing her at all, and basically just showing up and guiding her through some of the steps of the process that she obviously wouldn't have known, and saying, literally, here's some money so you can get some yourself some toilet paper, because everybody's going to be coming to your house, offering you, call me when you need me, I, I can do this, I can do that, and they're just gonna be showing up and at the end of the few days, you're not gonna have any toilet paper left. It's like literally the smallest thing. And then she calls like three days later and it's like, it's Sharon, you know, the toilet paper lady. And the woman is like, don't you know, I didn't have any toilet paper left and I really needed that. Thank you. And then, you know, but from there, then that's how she builds the trust with the person They now they have a relationship and she shows up for them for the next 10 years plus years, you know, in whatever they form they need. And so it's these very material, small things, but nobody, nobody teaches you that. Like when I've lost people in my life, there's so many people that I, at, at a certain point, I thought, oh, this, this is not helpful how they're responding to this. And then later I realized they don't have any other language. They don't know any other way to respond because our society doesn't teach us how to show up for each other like that. If you're enjoying the Haymarket Live series, you'll also be interested in a new book from Haymarket, Angela Davis, an autobiography. Featuring a substantial new introduction by the author, Angela Davis, an autobiography is a classic account of a life in struggle. 
Angela Davis has been a political activist at the cutting edge of the black liberation, feminist, queer, and prison abolitionist movements for more than 50 years. First published and edited by Toni Morrison in 1974, Angela Davis and Autobiography is a powerful and commanding account of her early years of political activity. With warmth, brilliance, humor, and conviction, Davis describes her journey from a childhood on Dynamite Hill in Birmingham, Alabama, to one of the most significant political trials of the century. From her political activity in a New York high school, to her work with the U.S. Communist Party, the Black Panther Party, and the Soledad Brothers, and from the faculty of the philosophy department at UCLA, to the FBI's list of the 10 most wanted fugitives. Find Angela Davis, an autobiography, at haymarketbooks.org. Boy, I got a thousand things on directions to go. On the last point, um, you taught us how to deal with this in your song process, you know, which I think was, um, for those of you, and by the way, write down these songs, go, you know, and, and buy, buy the CD. Don't just download stuff because no money. Um, but, but talk about, I want to talk about process and I want to talk about grief but before that let's let's begin with with process because like you were saying um we we often think that the the verb the practice of freedom dreaming is all about escape mm. that we somehow transcend the catastrophic situation of daily life and that we find some other place that is a dream space. Mm. But, you know, those, there's no such thing as a dream space, and, which is to say something that's separate from reality, because that reality that we're facing, the reason for freedom dreams in the first place is uh, a recognition of reality, recognition that this life is unsustainable. Mm. Um, and the way we grieve, not just, the, we, we grieve lots of things. We, we grieve the loss of, of family members and friends, we grieve the loss of people we never even heard of. Um, we grieve the loss of a past that just felt better. Um, and processes is a song that is about grief as transformation, you know, and also truthful, honest assessment of, you know, how do you grapple with that loss? What do you do with the pain? Would you put it? Um, can you talk about that song and you know whatever you want to do with that? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, I don't want to put you on the spot, but there's one thing I thought of, which maybe could you just before I do that? Um, I remember we had a conversation where you talked about the definition of utopia in this context. Do you remember that? <laughs> yes, I do remember. Um, and this is a definition that I I take from Jane Cortez when she talks about. Um, somewhere in advance of nowhere, that, that utopia is basically nowhere, you know, that it's not necessarily um, the thing you're sort of striving for at the top of a mountain, um, but precisely, uh, precisely because it is uh, nowhere, you know, it comes from the, the production of the idea of utopia. It's this constant process of making and remaking and remaking. So it's not like just some kind of magical destination at the end, you know, 
Was that what I was talking about? Or yeah. Was it something? Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. Thank, thank you for sharing that. It just I remember when you told me that it just really rang true, and it it was very important for me, very foundational kind of shift for me to think about um, where our horizon is in a sense. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what, in a certain way, what that piece is for me too. Is that that piece for me obviously came came through, you know, through as a very personal piece as a person that struggles with, you know, has struggled with anxiety, depression, different things like that. Um, and also just like self-worth stuff, you know, things, regular life things, that there was a lot of messages that I was receiving from society that were very binary in the sense mm-hmm. that like either you're okay or you're not, you know? And also like either you're, str- you're struggling with this and then you work on it and then you triumph over it, and then it's done. Like, it's like a sports game or something like that, (laughs) you know? Um, And, you know, in reality, at least for me, that's just never how it operates, you know? Um, And, and, you know, learning to understand these things as um, parts of the self that might always exist, but also can still be worked with and worked on and shifted um, was such a, a healthier thing for me. And so the song came out of that and, you know, just understanding, you know, that, that that's where the chorus came from. Guess I'll just say it's a process one day at a time. Um, and, um, so for me, I think that in and of itself is a shift in how I also saw struggle in a certain way and I think that's something that we've talked about a lot too is that um there is a way there must be a way I think to hold the realities of where we want to get to like alongside the how of where we the how and the here and now of how we get to it you know and um and I think that there's a way to practice the principles of the world we want to build as we are trying to build it, not when we get there, you know? And I think that's a very big question to me. How do you do that? And I think that that that's also what that song is about. A lot of the, the lyrics in the song are about me reckoning with things I regret, mistakes I made, things I didn't necessarily do well, or ways that I reacted in the moment towards people that I loved that were a result of where I was at the time, but that now I wish I had done differently. And I think a lot of times the way, the thing I see in the world is that a person makes a mistake and then they compound that mistake with a bigger mistake. But the second mistake is because of the the shame of the first mistake or the fact that they don't want to admit the first mistake or the fact that they're afraid of of what will happen or the fact that they will you know some etc 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 um and so to me that that is a an abolitionist principle as well is uh honesty (laughs) it's a very simple thing but it's hard honesty is difficult and certainly we all obviously see how important honesty is because on the macro level that is a thing, that is a warring principle that we're fighting every day just to literally try to get this country and this world to be honest, you know? Right. No, no, it's, 
you know, I was thinking too about how your whole project is kind of scales that up. You're talking to incarcerated people who um, in many ways are victims of, of a structure, but they're victims of a structure in which they may have made a mistake, but the structure doesn't allow them uh, to come to terms with it, to actually recognize the mistake without shame. And just like you said, it's that, sh- it's that cycle, that cycle of shame uh, and violence compounded, you know, and then the fact that you're now placed in a, in a situation where the culture of violence is the thing that drives the modern cage. You, can, you can't avoid it unless you can transform it. And how do you transform it when the, the whole organization of the state is completely violent? You know, and so this brings me to, you know, of course, I have I have lots of favorites, but one of my favorite songs, which, of course, turned into some will call it a video. I call it a film, this beautiful film, it's masculinity, which in many ways um, is about uh, how do you get past the question of the natural order of things in terms of gender, uh, in terms of gendered violence in terms of what does it mean to be a man, uh, to get past the shame of not being what society is telling you you're supposed to be, and then move toward a different way of being, uh, which is a very, it feels like it's, it's, it feels like a deeply personal song for all of us, you know, especially for so many of the folks you interviewed who, whose voices come through uh, Grief, the album. Um, so can you talk about that? And, and you know, with, since our time is, is running short, feel free to, your piano's right there. I'm not, I'm not saying you have to, but it's there. If you want to share anything, I think everyone would love that. You know, it's up to you. But those, sure. those are what I'm thinking about. Play a bit of the song first or talk about it? Or what? I, whatever you want to do. I, it would be cool if you play it and then talk about it. Okay, yeah, so I'll I'll play a little bit of the song. Um, Nice piano here. Masculinity. Yes, this, yeah, masculinity. Tower, it isn't yet your turn. I'll tell you five years later, you made it out alive. Blend games gonna lead to that feel for real. It's such a thrill. You might get lost in the darkness. I'm sensing so much anger. Where do you put it all? You made best friends with danger. It lives inside your home. Someone's catching it tonight. You'll lose your pride. You'll let it rain down on them. Show your heartless. Because you're a man. It's what you do. 
And it don't matter what you've been through. Yeah, you're a weapon. Yeah, you're a gun. You ain't no father. You ain't no son. You might be canvas. You might be paint. Just hide that damage. It fade away. Yeah, you a menace. Play out your role and loop that record and lose on the count of three. Am I gonna hurt somebody? If I feel these things, is it gonna hurt me? On the count of three, I can feel my heart, it's running. If I let it sing a sting, will it just erase me? Masculinity. Stop that. <laughs> And here behind me, we got Nipsey Hussle. That's good. That's perfect. <laughs> perfect version of it, too. Um, okay, that, okay. You, let's, let's talk about that song, your path to it. Yeah, yeah. so the, um, the original uh, inspiration for that song was uh, reading We Real Cool by Bell Hooks. Mm -hmm. And um, that, that book just uh, really shook me up. And, um, you know, led me into a journey of trying to um, write about, well, it was two, actually two books. It was actually two books. It was that book, and it was also Heavy by Kiese Lehman, which is another foundational book that shook me a lot. And um, so, yeah, that just led me on a journey to just try to create some type of piece of music that um, would represent uh what and i'm definitely mangling i think kiesa would use different different words but essentially what what kiesa was talking about in terms of the loudest and the quietest of violences and so i think often you know going back to the conversation we were having about spectacle is that my observation was that oftentimes uh when we had discussions about the violences of patriarchy and masculinity um, they would either, honestly, on a structural level and also on an individual level, they would always really basically be about the most loud versions of masculinist violence, you know, uh, the most obvious and spectacular and terrible things that men do and that, you know, patriarchal structures do. But there are also so many quiet ways in which those things show up on an everyday level. And I think what what the reproduction of that spectacle mindset um, creates, at least how I've observed it, is that it lets a lot of people off the hook because they think, well, if I'm not doing those absolutely terrible, heinous, horrible things to other people, then I must not be a part of that. You know, I must not really be reproducing any of those processes and practices. And in reality, um, I think that there are so many different ways in which we're all reproducing those things. And so this song for me was a way to try to look at um, what are the ways in which I have been, I have reproduced those things. And um, what are the definitions that I've conscripted myself into without knowing? Um, and also what are the ways that those things show up, not in my mind, but in my body? Because that's another thing that we don't really, at least I don't have never, I haven't had many conversations with other 
male identifying people or just people in general about the body and like uh oh man this this emotion is really showing up in my body a lot right now like i don't i've never had that conversation with them so um but 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 on the on alongside that i've had many an experience where something is happening i'm having a reaction to something i don't know where it's coming from it's just coming through my body and i think that you know as i examine that you see that um t- things can be learned that exists in in many different ways some unconscious some conscious and you can have reactions to things that you don't even know when or in what context you've been taught how to have that reaction but it just happens like that so if you're not looking for it you're not examining it you're not going to be able to interrupt that process so that's what that song is about yeah exactly and and we we inherit this bizarre language of it's in our dna when it's social Right. You know, and I think it's I think what's so beautiful about there's many things beautiful about the 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 film, um, but the fact that it opens with a dancer, you know, and in that that dancer on stage alone is in many ways um it's the freeing of the body to be able to express the poetry uh of both pain, trauma, and joy, you know, all simultaneously, you know. Um well, you know, since our time is short, I know this is the time that we're going to take some questions, John. Um, but as questions come in and comments, um, let me just say, you know, um, you know, to go back to this issue of of you as as abolitionists you know, and what it means to, uh, what's the sound of abolition. You know, I think of your work as really kind of abolition as life in rehearsal, as Ruth Wilson Gilmore would put it, uh, in the way that you actually walk the talk or you walk the song, you know, um, practicing abolition, practicing care, um, refusing to uh to to be um the center of of attention but refusing to give up responsibility you know to take responsibility but also to like not playing the star system and to think collectively and that to me is like some more printer hughes a small c communist you know um and all this in the shadows of the carceral state and you know, it's like you do this interior work and create art about the interior work of changing ourselves, of healing, of learning uh, to, um, as I put it once, to be natural in C-sharp, you know, which, of course, is one, um, uh, you know. And in many ways, you know, I think about how you do this at, you know, every moment of of your work, and even when you're not working, it's all there. So that makes it very special. Um, Thank you. So that was my little thing. Uh, let's just see if I, let me look at the chat here. Oh, there we go. Okay. Oh, okay. There's a lot of love for your performance. Thank you. <laughs> Appreciate it. Yes, and, um, and, and since, you, since all of you have that love, 
uh, you can get grief. Like I said, it's always better to to um, order the CD and get the T-shirts and the sweatshirts and all the stuff that comes with it that I, I know I have because um, I take great pride in that stuff. Uh, and you could hear uh, songs like Holding Cell and Kingly and Internal Geographies, Election Time, you know, the great Marcus Gilmore's on there featured on Rise Up. Uh, Emmanuel Wilkins, who's just a monster, you know, brilliant uh, saxophonist. Um, it's just a beautiful record. And of course, your sister, who is just masterful in every in every way. Um, so that's great. So make sure you get that. Um, and I think the one question is, where's the best place for people to listen to and purchase your music? Uh, oh, thank you. That's very kind. Um, you can listen to it basically in any context, but as uh, as my brother, Dr. Kelly, said, um, if you want to support, you know, uh, uh, Bandcamp is always the best way because they have the best uh, frameworks in terms of really supporting the artists, um, you know, versus like streaming and all that stuff. Um, but uh, yes, so I would say that's, that's the best place to find the material. And if you want to um, see the visuals, many of them are... Um, are on YouTube as well, um, the films and such. Um, but yeah, thank you for supporting. We appreciate that. So since you're right there, um, and we still got lots, of, we still got 15 minutes. Okay. Can you can you walk us? Could you tell us about the show right now that's up at the Ooh. kitchen? Yeah, and, yeah. And we, also where the kitchen is located. I know where, but maybe the 10,000 people on this call don't. Yeah. Well. Um, yes. Yeah, so. Um, the kitchen is uh, in currently in its temporary space at, at uh, 163 Bank Street at uh, West Fifth Artist Housing. Behind me is a projection piece. Uh, the sound is off right now, but um, this is a piece entitled Officer Involved um, by my brother Josh Bagley, um, which is a data piece um, that um, is uh, compiled of all the skies in uh, one year around which in, in the places where people were killed by state violence. Um, it is accompanied by my piece for those laws for those taken. Um, and um, uh, I have to see how I can do it with my phone, but behind me is with the piano is uh, an altar that we created um, and it on the we created it in the sense in in the format of the street lamps uh, that you see uh, around which people create shrines and such um, in neighborhoods for folks that have passed. And as people come to the different shows and come to the different um, installation days of which actually tonight, if people in New York, um, we're showing the films from seven to nine p.m. But um, people write names of those who have passed on the on the the street pole. Um, I also, we also have several pieces, um, over here that are actually, um, were created by an amazing friend of mine whose name is Pitt Panther. He's currently incarcerated in Maryland. This is a, um, this is a self-portrait of him in his cell. Um, and this is also, speaking of abolition, uh, one of his pieces that he made on his, the fabric of his bed sheets, which says, abolition is not a phoenix rising from the ashes. It is a butterfly, a brilliant metamorphosis into a new reality. So he definitely, actually I need to send him Freedom Dreams. It's in the mail to him right now. 
And then this is a set of pieces, um, which is called Bibliography, which is a set of um, clips that I compiled uh, that are basically citing um, many of the sources that have been the inspiration for this project right now. And this is a, a clip from August Wilson's The Piano Lesson in which they recite uh, the song Berta Berta, which originally was from Angola Plantation Penitentiary. And then we actually, um, underneath that, we have a series of books that were actually, they're all Haymarket books down here. And this is actually a series that Haymarket compiled with me um, in in accordance with the project and the album. Um, all, uh, incredible, you know, series of, of books, Border and Rule, Haunted by Slavery, Do This Till We Free Us. And also here we have Keith, Keith Lamar's book as well, Condemned. Um, so, so yes, this is the space. And, um, you know, very honored to be here with, with The Kitchen and uh, part of the continuum of, you know, trying to, to build um, spaces in which people can simultaneously work together to challenge the state and also gather. Right. So how long is it up for? It's here till January 24th. Okay, great. Well, in January. So people can definitely come, come to view it if you're in New York City. Yes, and I encourage you because there's nothing like seeing the work up front. And some of those films that you collaborated with with Josh are really extraordinary, um, really extraordinary. And in fact, to go back when you were talked, we were talking about um, about masculinity and the way in which there's kind of quiet and loud, but then there's also forms of of uh, violent masculinity that are loud, but considered to be um, heroic, mm. like war, of course. Yes, yes. But one of the amazing projects that you collaborated with Josh on, the um, it was the um, con uh, concussion protocols. It's on, the, it's on there right now. This right, yes, that, that is, <laughs> that's incredible. Um, <laughs> and it's just, the, the music and the visuals, what, what, what he's doing is he's taking these films of football players that had concussions and running them back. Uh, and you could see, I mean, it, it, it just underscores the violence and the kind of bread and circuses that, you know, um, my friend Dave Zyron talks about in his really, his recent um, uh, a documentary about football, patriotism, nationalism, and all that stuff. So that's something else we have to resist, you know, um, and I think, you know, you all are so bold at, at doing this. So uh, I, I so appreciate that. What's next for you? Um, so, yes, we'll, we'll be um, here through January. And then I think what's hopefully next is to make a book version of The Healing Project um, with uh, in accordance with and collaboration with my comrades uh, like Pitt and Keith and others who are inside. Um, who will be editing and illustrating the book, and then hopefully we'll be trying to disseminate that book um, inside the prisons. And then also, um, I think next year, hopefully we will be putting out a wider um, set of the music pieces that were created out of the interviews of the project and trying to essentially um, use that material to have some real conversations um, with folks of different areas and, and, you know, permutations throughout society around 
this is what uh, healing, like supporting healing practice in institutions would really look like. Um, so that's my hope for the work. Um, and um, other than that, just need to make more music, but you know. <laughs> right, and get that PhD. <laughs> <laughs> And I, you know, I, one thing, one other thing I will say too is that um, my my other hope is to um, my ho- other hope is to make more music, but also to use the music that exists to um, ally it to existing organizing work that's being done. Um, you know, whether that's campaigns, whether that's policy work, whether that's revolutionary organizing. Um, you know, I want to be thinking even more specifically and critically about the role of the music um, in those spaces. And, uh, you know, so I know you have a lot to say about that, but. Well, you know, I learned from you. So I'm I'm just very happy that uh, the artists like yourself, like Shamel, like Alexis Pauling Gums, like, you know, Vijay. I mean, there's so many, so many artists I'm, have mentioned, uh, like Boots Riley, for example. I mean, these are all people who are doing some amazing things in pushing the envelope in a way that uh, is not the old um, protest politics, you know. And there's something about uh, embracing abolition as practice, as politics, as philosophy, uh, and to go back to what I see as that kind of the trilogy of of uh, abolition as as a place, as a sound, and as time, freedom time, you know. Uh, and you're always playing in freedom time. Doesn't matter whether it's a ballot or up-tempo piece, it's always freedom time for some more Pinder use. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I love um, Killing it. Definitely. Okay, well, um, people are just very excited about your work. Uh, and there are no questions. Um, I just want to to end by saying, you know, um, you know, just some some thoughts. You know, for really for the past decade, you know, you have been exploring these questions um, of the sounding of language, of, you know, of, of of storytelling and image. Uh, in such a revolutionary way, um, and in many ways, your work, for me at least, is the embodiment of the Black radical tradition, of indigenous thought, of surrealism, of queer theory, of disability justice, you know, all that tied together. Uh, and, and you remind us, you know, that maybe the oldest form of art is storytelling. And you tell stories, great ones, important ones, difficult ones, ones that we can't turn away from. So um, for that, uh, I so appreciate you, love you, and will, you know, and hopefully everyone will join me in thanking you and promising, committing to support all the work you do. So Thank you some more. I appreciate it. That's very, uh, you're going to, you're going to uh, make me very emotional, but I appreciate that means so much. Um, And um, 
you know, it's just, a, it's quite an honor to be able to also, um, you know, not just speak with you, but to, to talk with you in, you know, respect and conversation with Freedom Dreams, a book that, you know, really transformed my life, a book that allowed me to understand myself as being a part of the surrealist lineage, which I never <laughs> understood without that. Um, and, you know, I think that that's a, a something that I hope that we continue to discuss as well. Um, I remember when I first met you, you know, you gifted me your book, Black, Brown, and Beige, which was about the roots of surrealism in the Black lineage and experience, particularly in the Caribbean, and that transformed my entire understanding of that practice. I think so often, you know, uh, those, speaking of stories, you know, those stories are robbed for us, those histories are robbed from us in order to, so that, uh, you know, um, as people, as artists, as practitioners, just any anything that people are engaged in doing, we are not allowed to see how um, how expensive the traditional mm-hmm. thinking has been, you know. And so I I'm I'm grateful for this book for that purpose, and I'm deeply grateful also for the ways in which I'm grateful deeply grateful for the ways in which it um, makes me. Uh, hopeful mm-hmm. yeah. right because well, I think that's yeah. important thing yeah no no i i i hear you and so this is this is then, then you know an opening we'll end with the opening two openings one opening is of course um anthony you, you see you got you got a book project that you could sign up <laughs> just saying just saying but then the other opening is you know my uh my dear friend uh, Naomi Wallace, a great playwright, uh, who, you know, one day we're going to collaborate on something. Um, she's one of the greatest storytellers I've ever encountered. And so um, the three of us, one day, you know, I'm just going to sit back and, and watch. And, and But basically, you all are going to collaborate and do a musical about some revolutionary, <laughs> you know, in the future. So that's an invitation um, to, to Naomi as well. So with that, um, thank you so much. Um, love to your family. Say hi to Elena for me. And, um, and just let everyone know, we got another one coming up. Um, yeah. The next conversation is with uh, a, a great scholar named Elizar Kelly. <laughs> yeah, yes, relation. We'll, we'll talk about that later. Anyway, take care. Thank you, Samora. Thank and- you so much. Thank you to Haymarket. Thank you. To my brother for having me for, for everything that you do. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.